very special presentation. <laughs> Teacher Art and all the children's ministry staff, special thanks to you guys for your faithful ministry and service to our children. My, our, our children's ministry has grown over the years. I remember maybe seven, eight years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, our children's ministry was just uh, Derek, Lindsay, and Carol, I think. And they would do special presentations on Christmas and be like, um, three of them would come up and sing songs and do verses. And, and then one time it was, um, Lindsay was coming up and she hurt her eye. I don't know if you remember Lindsay and started crying. So it was supposed to be three of them singing and it became a duet. That was a long Sunday morning service <laughs> there, <laughs> mostly because of Derek, but no. So thank you for just, again, your ministry to, to us. Um, you know, Marcus is talking about just how hectic it is with Christmas and in Gary as well yesterday, and I definitely am in the thick of that. Our family, we're, we're so behind. I, 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 don't, I know I shouldn't make personal announcements during the pulpit, but I feel pressured to because... Um, if you haven't received a Christmas card from our family, don't be offended. It's not anything personal. Nobody has gotten one yet. <laughs> and so we, we've given up on trying to get a Christmas card for Christmas, uh, by Christmas. We're going to do a, maybe a Valentine's card. <laughs> a little early or something. Or a President's Day card or something. But we definitely missed the boat on that. And, uh, just still trying to catch up. Well, our text for this morning is, Luke chapter 3, um, preparing yourself for the coming king. Preparing yourself for the coming king. Now, if you know a little bit about me, you know that I was born in New York, sent to Korea to be raised by my grandparents, and I came back to the States after my first semester in kindergarten. So I was about six years old when I came back to the States. So my memories of my childhood in Korea are somewhat clear, but at the same time very fuzzy. So I don't know how accurate it is, whether it was before I came or when I returned back to Korea during my summer visits there. But I remember when I was very young, maybe six, seven years old, the big event in South Korea was um, the then-president Jimmy Carter visiting South Korea. It was his first visit there. He was coming with his whole family. The whole country was very excited at the prospect of having the sitting president of the United States come for a, to a tour, for a visit, for extended time with, with South Korea. In 1976, South Korea was a third world country, a very poor country. I remember a very substandard and weak infrastructure, uh, dirt roads, uh, stray dogs everywhere. Um, you know, there were common scenes of moms bathing their young children out in the public streets. Maybe walking down the street and you see a kid getting a bath. A lot of um, homeless people lining the streets. I remember, I think it was from my grandparents, how they were, the government, Korean government was preparing for the President Carter's visit. Their plan was to strictly control his motorcade that would pass through Seoul. So on that paved that that route that they were going to take, they repaved that road. Uh, they filled in all the potholes. They repainted the street lines. Installed new light fixtures. They repainted all the buildings along that road. They uh, caught all the stray dogs. Gathered together all the 
uh, homeless people and, and put them on another city. Uh, they uh, forbid everyone from eating kimchi week before and week after. Is visit that's a joke, right? Um, and definitely no public bathing of young children along that route. Um, all to present South Korea to the leader of the United States in a in a good way. Uh, it's not the first time that such preparation took place for the arrival of someone important. It happens on a national scale. It also happens on a personal scale. I also remember as a junior high student. Um, Coming home one day, and my mom telling us that the pastor of our church is coming for a visit, you know, visitation. So we need to get our home ready for his visit with us. My mom was almost hysterical, frantic in preparing our home for his time with us. Our family was not a very clean family, not a very organized and orderly family. So it was very messy, had a lot of work ahead of us. My mom and my dad vacuumed the carpet and had it steam cleaned, hired cleaners to clean the windows and the walls. My room was a mess. I think it was my seventh grade and hadn't been cleaned for at least seven years. (laughs) Several years. My mom forced me, bribed me, coerced me uh, to clean my room, and I did it. My parents were smokers, so they got rid of all the ashtrays. All the air fresheners they got out, they hid all the alcoholic beverages right in the back of the fridge or stored it away in the garage. I remember the day he visited us, it was on a Saturday, and I was watching TV, and he just kind of came in, like without like notice. And my parents were still upstairs, and I was watching TV, and he just he said hi and walked in and sat right next to me, and the TV was on, and I remember... See, like all the worst commercials came on right when I was sitting next to him, and I couldn't leave. I couldn't turn the channel. I remember being just so embarrassed for his time with us. We all do this, whether to different degrees. We prepare ourselves when important people visit us, visit our home, maybe visit our company, visit our church even. Well, Christmas celebrates the arrival of the most important person, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How are we to prepare for His arrival? How are we to prepare for the birth of Christ, for the coming of the King? In Luke chapter 3, we discover how John the Baptist taught Israel on how they were to prepare themselves for the arrival of the king, for the beginning of our Lord's ministry. So in a way, he is teaching us how we as God's people ought to observe Christmas, how we ought to prepare ourselves for the coming of God's Messiah. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Let's read God's word together. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Luke 3, 1 through 18. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ithria and Trachonitis and Lysanias, 
tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Luke 3 tells us that in a historical time period, that's verified, that can be verified, and has been verified by historians. The Word of God came to John the Baptist. And he began to preach. He went all around the region of Jordan, verse 3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The word proclaiming is from Kerusa the primary meaning of which is to herald. It was used of the official whose duty it was to proclaim loudly and extensively the coming of the king. The herald would go before the king and he would have two responsibilities. His first responsibility was to proclaim to everyone that the king is on his way. To tell people that the ruler of the lands is arriving and to prepare themselves for his arrival. His second job was to prepare the way. With a group of servants, the herald would make sure that the roadway was smooth, uncluttered as possible, 
that there were no obstacles. He would fill in the potholes, remove the rocks and debris. Any unsightly litter would be burned or hidden. His twofold duty was to proclaim and to prepare. And that is exactly what the baptizer did. He went before the arrival of the king. He proclaimed the coming kingdom. And he prepared the way. Now John the Baptist understood that this was not, he was not calling for a physical preparation, an external preparation. That what he was calling to was not for people to change outwardly, was not telling them to paint their houses, right, remove stray dogs, right, change their diet. These things were, were not the right appropriate way to prepare for Christ, Jesus Christ. He was calling them for a spiritual, inward preparation. And he was proclaiming a message not of an earthly kingdom, but proclaiming a message of the spiritual kingdom. As he did this, as he carried out his radical ministry, we know it was radical because he was ministering not in Jerusalem, in the, in the, the center, in the capital of Israel, He was not ministering in the temple grounds where religious people gathered for their religious rituals. He was on the other side of Jordan in the wilderness, in the desert. There was nobody there, but he was preaching. And somehow the word got out of his message. And the word got out about the kind of messenger that was carrying this message. He was a radical, radical guy clothes with camel's hair, eating locusts and honey, living an uncompromised life, preaching an uncompromising message. As he proclaimed this message faithfully, an amazing thing happened. People flooded towards him. People left the comforts of their home, comforts of their major cities, and went to the desert to listen to John the Baptist. They streamed towards him in the wilderness. This was after the intertestamental period. 430 years of silence from God. Malachi spoke and there was silence. The silence was deafening from God. No more messengers, no more message. They were waiting for God to speak. And here is John the Baptist. God breaks his silence and he speaks and people flood towards this messenger. People in droves poured out into the desert. And look at verse 7. When the baptizer saw the crowds that were coming out to be baptized by him, this was his friendly message. This was his response to the hordes of people that were clamming after him to be baptized. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now in Matthew, the parallel passage, Matthew 3.7 adds that it was Pharisees and Sadducees that were coming that provoked this response from John the Baptist. Seeing the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the legalism, the liberalism as well of the Sadducees, the baptizer's response was not a very friendly greeting. Responded by saying, 
you brood of vipers. A specific term in the Greek, noting a poisonous snakes. These snakes, there were no snakes that were more poisonous. The person bitten by them swells up almost immediately and falls down dead. You vipers, you snakes who poison and kill people, destroy people's lives with your venom, with your false doctrine, with your false religion. And he calls them, you brood, you generations of vipers. It didn't start with you. Right? It's a family business, intergenerational um, um, poisoning of people by their false teaching and false life. Their fathers, forefathers were all snakes. He calls them out and he tells them a simple message. A simple message that we are to proclaim today and continue to proclaim until the return of Christ. When Christ returns to the earth, that message can be summarized with one word, the word repent. Repent. Remember John the Baptist? His responsibility was to proclaim and prepare. The the content of his proclamation was repentance. Look at verse 4. Second part of verse 4. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Paths were crooked. That is why, verse 3, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The call of John's voice that was crying in the wilderness of Judea was the shouting of urgent command to the people. Urging them to repent. Urging them to confess. Urging them to acknowledge their desperate need of a Savior. This was uh, John's message from the beginning. Goes to verse 8. Tells, tells, tells them, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. Not a one-time act, but a continual repentance. Early believers were called the repentant. They're always broken, always contrite, always confessing, always in a state of perpetual remorse because of the condition of their hearts. I mean, this is what the Greek word metanoia means. It means to turn around to change direction, to change the mind and the will. It does not denote just any change, but always a change from wrong to the right. If a person turned from righteousness to unrighteousness, it was not called repentance. It was called going astray. It was called falling back, backsliding. But when a person turned from unrighteousness to righteousness, a person turned from sin to Christ, It was called metanoia. It was called repentance. Recognition of personal sin. Deep remorse. Deep feeling of wrongdoing and of sin against God. Understanding 
that one has sinned against the thrice holy God. And one must turn away from sin in order to turn to Christ. Now, John the Baptist was aware that within this group, there were many who were longing for true repentance. Longing for a genuine relationship with God. Longing to truly prepare for the arrival of the Messiah. But for the majority of them, they were not interested in true preparation. They wanted to just uh, paint the walls. Right? Just clean the carpet. Clean the windows. You know, hide the beer. Right? You know, throw, hide the ashtrays. They didn't want true repentance. So, in the following section, John denotes six marks of true repentance. So that they and we would know how to discern between genuine repentance, true preparation, from false repentance, false preparation. Six marks of true repentance are as follows, and we'll go through them one by one. First of all is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. Second is disavowing any source of spiritual pride. Third is recognizing divine wrath for personal sin. If you don't get them, we'll go through them one by one. Fourth mark is earnest desire to live out repentance. Fifth, true repentance is seen outside of religious practices. And finally, the final mark is that you acknowledge the Lord will discern. Lord will judge between true and false repentance. First mark. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Fruit is always seen in Scripture as manifested behavior. Matthew 7.20 Fruit is almost the reality of a person. The true state of the person is not what the person believes or says or professes. The true state, the true reality of a person is seen is in his or her fruit. So, Matthew 7, a good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. The fruit reveals the root. A person might profess thousand and one things. But a person's talk is really uh, insignificant compared to the testimony of their fruit. Mere acknowledgement of sin and feeling conviction of sin do not complete repentance. There are many who feel sorry for sin. There are many. I was driving home yesterday. We got caught in traffic on Beach Boulevard because they had a DUI checkpoint. And so now we're laughing. They're not going to stop us because they see our minivan with four kids. They're not going to slow us down. But we could see many were being pulled over. And I'm sure in those cars, there are many who felt deeply sorry for breaking this government's laws and driving under the influence. But feeling sorry, feeling remorse, having conviction, acknowledging wrongdoing is not repentance. Because many of those people will continue to drink and some will drink and drive again. Likewise, in the spiritual realm, 
true repentance not only has remorse, but will have correspondingly genuine works, genuine fruits in both attitudes and actions. John's words to these religious leaders was at once a rebuke and an invitation. He was saying, you have shown no evidence of genuine fruit. But you now have the opportunity to truly repent if you mean it. Show me that you repent of sins. Show me and show God that you are genuinely horrified at your own hypocrisy. And you are attracted to God's holiness, God's beauty, by renouncing false religion and abounding in good works after God. Albert Barnes said this in his commentary of this passage. The Baptist was saying, bring proper fruits of reformation, the proper evidence that you are sincere. Do not bring your cunning your deception to this work. Do not carry your hypocrisy into your professed repentance, but evince your sincerity by forsaking sin and thus give evidence that this coming to Jordan to be baptized is not an act of penance, but a true act of repentance. The New Testament is consistent on this. James 2.17 Faith without works is dead. You say you have faith, but if your faith is not accompanied by works, your faith is a dead kind of faith. I believe you. You have faith. But God tells you the faith that you have is the kind that is dead. That is the kind of faith that demons have. They believe God. They have faith in God. But they do not tremble. They do not shake. And they do not produce fruit. James 4.20 continues. Or 1 John 4.20 continues. I love God. Someone says, I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. You are deceived and you are deceiving others. If you profess love for God but you don't have the first fruit of love for God, which is love for fellow Christians. So a lack of fruit, continual producing of fruit, shows that your repentance is false. But a presence of continuing fruit, bearing fruit, is the first mark of true repentance. Second mark is that you disavow any source of spiritual pride. Disavow any source of spiritual pride. John the Baptist was a prophet. He was given words of knowledge, given glimpses into people's hearts, and John knew right away what they were thinking. He stopped them from thinking this, because they were about to think this, and speak thus. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do not presume upon God because of your lineage, because of your ethnicity, because of your ancestry. 
God is not impressed by people's human heritage. John's point was simple. You think you are in a special position before God because of your race, because of your heritage, because of your ancestors. No, you are just like the Gentiles. You are just like the worst of all sinners. You have no right to God's kingdom. Kingdom. You need to truly repent. And it applies us, applies to us directly. God is not a respecter of persons. He's not impressed with our credentials. He cares not what family members of ours have gone to missions, whether we have family members who are pastors, how many generations you, 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 you've, had, you've had Christians in your family. He cares not, impressed not with our credentials in ministry, credentials in service, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. In fact, in John chapter 8, when the religious leaders were, were boasting about their heritage, having Abraham as their forefather, and saying God is their father, remember John 8, what Jesus said? I know your father. Your father is the devil because you are lying. You don't believe in Abraham. You don't have the faith of Abraham. And when the devil speaks lies, he's speaking his native tongue. And because you are lying and you're bearing fruits of your father, this proves that your father is not my father. Your father is, in fact, the devil himself. So the second mark of genuine faith is you disavow any source of spiritual pride. Right. That's what um, Paul did in Philippians Right? Philippians 3, his spiritual heritage, his credentials as a righteous Jew, he abandoned, cast aside, calls it scubalon. It's rubbish. It's nothing compared to Christ. It is nothing. So it's not adding Christ to your works, adding Christ to your righteousness. It is abandoning your righteousness. And receiving Christ alone, that is the second mark of true repentance. Third mark is you recognize that you deserve divine wrath because of personal sinfulness. You recognize divine wrath. You deserve it because of personal sins. Some of these people came because they understood verse 9. They understood. They didn't come casually. They didn't come leisurely. They didn't come as if on a you know, summer out, outing to the wilderness. And while we're out, why don't we you know, stop by this John the Baptist guy and see what he's all about. Some of these people had genuine faith, genuine repentance in their hearts, and knowing that their judgment was due and deserved and imminent, they ran after the Baptist because they knew verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Because the Messiah had arrived, the time of cutting off trees that did not bear good fruit has come. At the end of every harvest season, the farmer would go through his vineyard, looking for plants that are born no good fruit. These would be cut down because to make room for productive vines and trees, to keep them from taking nutrients from the soil that were needed by the good plants. 
A fruitless tree was a worthless tree, a useless tree, fit only to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Our Lord used a similar figure in describing false disciples in John 15:6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, it dries up, and they are gathered, and they are cast into the fire, and they are burned. Fruitless repentance. There is no benefit. There is no credit with God. There is no, you know, good old college try. God will honor your attempts. Fruitless repentance. False repentance is worthless and useless. It means absolutely nothing to God. In fact, it provokes God's anger and causes Him to act swiftly, to cut it out and to throw it into the fire. Fire is a frequent biblical symbol of the torment of divine judgment and punishment. Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19.24, were destroyed by brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Korah and his men were eaten up by the earth, went down alive to Sheol, and number 16.32 says, Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering the incense, false worship to God. In his role as a righteous judge, God is often described as a consuming fire. In the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi speaks of the coming day when there will be burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant, every evildoer will be like chaff. And on that day, they will be set ablaze. Malachi for one. And this is the figure that John uses to warn those people who are thinking that they are deceiving God and deceiving God's messenger and deceiving the Christ. No. A mark of true repentance is you acknowledge that you deserve divine wrath. and Divine wrath is imminent. That you don't delay repentance. You don't put it off. You don't put it as one of your I'll get to it one of these days list. You don't approach repentance with an idle, complacent heart. A mark of true repentance is you understand divine judgment. It's coming upon you because of your personal sins and that this divine judgment is imminent. That we're a mist that appears for a little while and then we vanish. And if we have no fruit, we throw into the fire. With that understanding, you approach the living God fourth mark of true repentance is that there is an earnest desire to live out repentance. To live out repentance. Now this is key. This is this, uh, you know, the devil's in the details, right? God is also in the details. This doing part of repentance comes post-repentance, post-faith. These people, because of faith, because of true repentance, their fruit was wanted to do, wanted to work out, wanted to live out their faith. They weren't subscribing to a workspace salvation. God, what must I do? 
What penance must I pay? What price must I pay for me to be saved? No, now that I believe, now that I understand, now that I have true repentance, the first fruit that is produced in my life is I want to do, I want to act, I want to obey, I want to follow. Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What then shall we do? If you're a good Bible student, then you recognize this phrase from Acts chapter 2. After Peter gave his Pentecost sermon, the very same people who were involved in the conspiracy of murdering Christ, the very same people who saw the, the crucified Lord, after they were convicted by Peter's sermon, Peter said, you crucified him. You were the ones who killed the Messiah. What were the people's response? Acts 2.37 When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Their hearts melted within them. Their hearts were broken in two. Because they realized they killed God's Messiah. They murdered God's Son. And in remorse and repentance, their response was, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? How are we to respond? And Peter said, Believe in Christ. Repent. And over 3,000 were added to the church that day. That's a sign of true faith. Prompted by true faith, true repentance, you want to live out the Christian life. You want to obey. You want to follow. You're tired of the sidelines. You're tired of just being convicted. This guilt and the shame and the feeling sorry for sins. You want to follow Christ. You want to actively pursue and believe in Christ. That is why all the different people in this group said, What shall we do? Right? What shall we do? Right? The crowds asked, What shall we do? Tax collectors, what shall we do? The soldiers, what shall we do? These were all people who truly, they had true faith. False repentance is, uh, I'm, I'm saved already. I'm done. This is great. Man, this is the best deal of the century. All I have to do is feel bad for my sins and say this prayer and I'm saved. Wow, all I have to do is just get a little wet. Right, sign the dotted line, come to church on Sundays, or just just act religious, and I'm saved, and I can never lose salvation. The worst two combination, right? First, wrong doctrines to be combined: easy believism and uh, eternal security. Right, so you can, it's easy to get saved, and you can never lose that salvation, and that's a toxic combination leading people astray blinding them, deceiving them into eternal damnation. That's false repentance. Right? Easy faith, easy salvation, and forever salvation requires no following, no good works, no believing, no trusting, no cleaving, no pursuing. It's one time, you said the prayer, you're in, no worries, heaven has promised you, that's not a mark of true faith. That's a mark of false faith, false repentance. The fifth mark of true repentance is that true repentance is to be lived out outside of religious practices. Outside of religious practices. It's amazing that true repentance 
is immensely practical. There's nothing here about going to the synagogue. Nothing about memorizing the Torah. Nothing about praying more or giving more tithes or, or nothing about just doing spiritual things. Nothing at all. True repentance goes beyond the vertical but goes to the horizontal and is lived out practically in one's life. That is why it is so discernible. It is so clear. That's why you can see false religion from true religion from a mile away. False religion is confined to religious duties. True religion transcends religious duties into practical mundane duties. Right. So the people ask, what shall we do? Verse 11, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Have compassion on your fellow man. You have two jackets, you find a person who has no jacket, share with, share with him. Don't be greedy. Right? Don't be so materialistic. Don't live for this world. Don't be so self-centered. Don't live for your flesh. Care for people more than you care for things. Very practical. If you have food and there is someone without food, hey, how about sharing that food with that person? That's true faith. That's true repentance. It's not just praying and reading the Bible and going to church. No, in the practical real world, you live out the gospel by having compassion for those who are in need. The New Testament is consistent with that. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And we need to personalize this, because every single person in this room is rich. There's no one here who can consider themselves poor. All of us, God's commanding us not to be conceited, not to be arrogant, not to trust in our wealth, but verse 18, to do good, to be rich in good deeds. To be generous. Be willing to share. In this way, you will lay up treasure for yourselves in the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You will show that your faith is true. Your repentance is genuine. James one twenty seven: Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and flawless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So hypocritical religion is your religious life is limited to spiritual things. Unhypocritical religion, true, unpolluted religion is, it goes beyond the walls of the church, walls of the synagogue. The task collectors came, said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Right? The sin of theft, sin of lying, sin of cheating, sin of stealing. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Do not abuse your authority. Do not abuse your authority. Applies to all of us here. God has given us authority in various places. Various roles. Do not abuse it. And the next one hurts. Be content with your wages. Right? Be content with your wages. 
how many of us believe, man, my work pays me so well. Pays me too much. Right? You know, I should return some of it back every month because they value me too highly. highly. I am overpaid. Right? I, I underwork. I am undeserving. My, 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 my employer deserves better. Right? I'm getting way overpaid. How many of us would, would say that? Or would we be like the soldiers grumbling about our pay? Right. John told the soldiers, be content. Right. Be at peace. Be content. The final mark of true repentance is that one acknowledges that it is the Lord who will judge between true and faith, true and false repentance. It is the Lord who will judge. Not yourself, not elders, not pastors, not a church, not friends. But the Lord will judge, and His judgment is right. The two of the most frightening verses in the Old Testament arguably are Judges 17.6 and Judges 21.25. Judges 17.6, It reads, In those days there was no king in Israel, no arbiter of truth. No determiner between truth and error, right and wrong. Therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And the writer of Judges repeats it in the last verse of that book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, no one to judge. Final judgment, therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So for salvation, we all judge with our own eyes. But the Bible says, we do not determine, declare, or decide whether our faith or repentance is acceptable to God. I don't determine that. I can't tell you if you have true faith or not. I can look at your fruit and give advice, give counsel, be a mirror, and give you my thoughts. But ultimately, I can't tell you the truth about the state of your heart. And the last person that you can, that, that can tell is yourself. Because you are doing what is right in your own eyes. Isn't that frightening? Isn't that horrifying? True faith says, yes, I don't determine. Church doesn't. Christ determines and he will determine one day. True repentance acknowledges this. And so trust in Christ. Instead of trusting in fruit, trusting in deeds, Trusting in religion, trust in, well, I gave that person food. You know, I, I, my jacket I shared, right? I did these things. Instead of trusting in these things, true faith, trust in Christ and in His promises. False repentance has confidence in one's own salvation. Verses 15 and 16, John talks about this. People are questioning in their hearts, is John the Christ? Can he save us? Can he tell us who has true faith and false faith? John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. But he was mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The task of unlacing someone's sandals was so low on the service ladder that if that was your job, there was no one below you. You were on the lowest pay grade. Right? You, you were, you were, 
there was no one for you to boss around or order, order around. You were the least of all slaves. It was such a degrading task that Jews did not participate, did not uh, carry out that task. They considered it too beneath them. John the Baptist was saying, there's a man who is coming, and compared to him, I am so low, I am not worthy to untie the laces of his sandals. Why? This is the reason. Because I baptize with water. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know you. You tell me you, you repent. You tell me you believe. You tell me all these things. I baptize you with water. That's all I can do. But a man is coming and he will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. Spiritual baptism. Great statement filled with tremendous and profound truth. Anyone can baptize with water. But there is one who is coming. He is the stronger one, the mightier one. The one I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. The one who will do things that only God can do. The only one who can immerse you in the Holy Spirit. The only one who can immerse you in fire. Judge you. John is pointing to the deity of the Messiah. He's saying, I don't have the power to save you. I don't have the power to damn you. I don't have the power to immerse you in the Holy Spirit and save your soul. And I don't have the power to to immerse you in the fire and damn you forever. Judge you forever. Not only for John the Baptist, but no man has that kind of power. I don't. I, I wish I had that power. Where people come and I could save them. There are people right now who I know. I want to save them. If I had that power, I'd use it and just instantaneously baptize them in the Holy Spirit and have them trust in Christ. But you know what? I don't have that power because I don't have the power to save myself. If I had that power, the first first person I would use that power on is myself. And baptize myself with the Holy Spirit to ensure that I'm a Christian. Right? But I don't have that power to save myself. I don't have the power to save you. And you don't have the power to save yourself. Right? And you can't trust your own judgment because we all do what is right in our own eyes. And verse 17 this terrifying picture. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The threshing floor. They would get wheat and press the wheat on this floor and with a fork they would move it around and the wind will blow away the chaff. The seed will remain. The wheat they will bring into the barn. The chaff they will burn in fire. It's a picture of Christ. What he will do on the judgment day. Him with perfect power, complete sovereignty, perfect knowledge, with a winnowing fork in his hand, will separate people. With his perfect knowledge, separate wheat from chaff. Wheat, those with true repentance, true faith, he will bring into his barn, bring into heaven, 
to be with him forever. Those who are just chaff, false faith, false repentance, man-centered faith, you will separate into eternal fire. True faith acknowledges that Christ has an authority, that my salvation lies with him. Not with my profession, not with my works, not with my church, not with what I think I am. But true repentance says, Christ will judge, and his judgment will be true. Well, to close our time, in light of Christmas, how do we prepare for Christmas? How do Christians prepare for Christmas? By repenting. Repentance. Preparing ourselves for the coming of the King. Preparing ourselves spiritually. See, the first time He came, He came as a baby Jesus, you know, with red cheeks and swaddling clothes in a manger. And, you know, just Mary holding Him. And He grew up and He was a meek and mild man. And He rode on a donkey and He was crucified. But for believers... We're not waiting for Jesus to come as a baby Jesus again. If you are, you're sorely mistaken. I'm not looking at the stars, looking for a bright star to follow after. Look for baby Jesus. The Bible says the king will come back. But when he returns, he will not be this weak and gentle and humble lamb. He won't be riding on a donkey. When Christ returns, you see that in the book of Revelation. Eyes blazing with fire. Right? Glory surrounding him, full of power and majesty, riding on a white horse, victorious to judge, to discern, to separate wheat from the chaff. So as Christians, on Christmas, we don't wait for baby Jesus. We don't prepare for him. We prepare for the coming king that is still yet to come. And that that day, he will bring to light what is in darkness Therefore, we prepare ourselves spiritually, not externally, not physically. Therefore, we are to repent. As Christians, we don't make New Year's resolutions. We repent of false repentance. We repent for uh, not bearing fruit. That is equal to our repentance, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The Greek word is oxios, in value. So our fruit should equal our repentance. So if our repentance is great, we repent of the fact that our fruit bearing is not equal to our repentance. We repent of having spiritual pride apart from Christ. We repent for minimizing divine wrath. For not seeing it as it actually is. For sanitizing God and making Him more like man in our own conception of Him. And not understanding and acknowledging how our personal sins incur the wrath of God. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We repent for our lack of desire to live out our true repentance. We want to uh, limit our Christian lives to Sunday mornings and make sure that we're presentable on Sundays and we're not 
careful how we live during the week. We repent of not living out our Christian faith in practical ways, right? in specific ways, not having compassion on those who are in need, right? hypocritically abusing our authority, lying, cheating, and stealing, grumbling, discontent, all the while professing great faith in Christ or abounding in all these sins. We repent of these sins. And finally, on Christmas, we remember that the final judge of whether of true or false repentance is not us. It's not me. It's not yourself. But it's Christ. Therefore, we resolve all the more again to trust in Christ and to hope in Him. Let's pray. I want to give you a minute to respond. Can't think of a more appropriate study for during this season where we're drunk with so many material things, where our, this world and our pursuits feed our pride and feed our false confidence that all is well and lulls us into this stupor where we forget the reality of the gospel. I believe for many, today's study in Luke 3 was for you. God is speaking to you through the scriptures, seeking that you would cast out how right you are in your own eyes and see yourself with God's eyes to the lens of scripture that you would Truly repent. Spiritually prepare yourself for the return of Christ, for the coming King. We know not when He will return. In a blink of an eye, He will be here. Are you prepared? Are you ready for His arrival? Lord, we thank you for the clear and strong message from the Word of God. We know that this world, we make light of everything. It's all about making a people, making ourselves feel comfortable, rather than being confronted with the truth. It is so clear in the Word of God who you are, what you have done, and when you call us to do, before a God who knows all, we confess, each of us, that we're in need of genuine, true repentance. Lord, we are helpless to produce this on ourselves. We need you to save us from our sins. We need you to open our eyes, save us from our own pride and our own arrogance and how we deceive ourselves with our false righteousness would you rescue us and cause us to put our house in order 
to set our spiritual houses, spiritual lives in order that when you return, you will find faith on the earth and you will find faith in our hearts. Lord, we fear there are many in our church on that great day of judgment that they would be with the chaff, that they'll be taken away to the fire with weeping and gnashing of teeth. It'd be too late. No turning back. No repentance possible. We fear that would be the reality for many, even in our own church. We pray and we know they cannot say they were not warned. We were not taught. We were not instructed with the Word of God. We pray that if they were to do that, it would be against their knowledge. Knowing the truth, they violated the Word of God. But we pray that would not be the case. That for people that are listening to these truths would humble their hearts and truly uh, earnestly seek to repent, renounce themselves, and follow after you. Believe in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.